Hi everyone, this is Brant Van Rokel, lead pastor of Christ City Kitsilano, and I want to let you know about a couple of things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us at 5th Avenue Cinema on Burrard Street at 9.30 a.m. We meet every Sunday morning for worship, word, and sacrament, and we'd love for you to join us there. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church Kitsilano is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to hear more about what God has called us to here in Kitsilano, then please reach out to me at brant at christcitychurch.ca or you can visit christcitychurch.ca slash Kitsilano. The scripture reading this morning is taken from Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through to 22. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh, store cities, Pithom, and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick and in all, all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of the Lord. Last week, uh, I shared a little bit at the beginning of the message about um, uh, the idea of reverence in our worship. But this week, I have um, a different uh, little PSA to share with you, um, and that's of hospitality. The Bible teaches us in Romans 15.7 to welcome one another as uh, God in Christ has welcomed us. Thanks, Arpin. Um, and this is a time of year when we have lots of new visitors, and you may have noticed that theaters aren't exactly the best place for church kind of seating, uh, especially this long middle aisle. And I just want to throw it out there that we'll welcome people who come here into worship really well if we find people while we're out in the lobby to sit with and to move into the middle 
of the aisles together with. Because uh, then when those come uh, who are new and trying to find a spot to sit, sometimes there's just no spots available a little bit later on. So take note of that. Um, it's a way of loving those and showing hospitality to those that come here. So we just want to encourage you uh, in that. You guys are all so good at welcoming and loving uh, those who are new. Um, but I want to encourage you in it in this practical way. Um, that said, would you pray with me as we begin? Yeah, Father, we come to you and we come... Oh, Lord, just asking, pleading with you in the name of Jesus, would you do a work in us this morning? Lord, would you empty us of us and our sinfulness and our flesh and fill us with your spirit? God, would we decrease, would you increase in our lives and together as a church and in this neighborhood? God, we pray that you would work on us through this message, that you would glorify the name of Jesus you would help us to endure suffering well. That you would help us to fear your name, to serve you above all. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when times are good, when things are going well, when you have all the food and pleasure and joy and comfort that you want, when you have sunshine and a relatively pain-free existence, when you are reading your Bible regularly and praying and even enjoying it. Those times are times when in our relationship with God, we're kind of feeling like we're up on the mountain peaks. It's a clear day. If you've hiked, you've seen this before. If you've skied, you've been up on the mountains, you've seen this before. And, And you look out over the expanse, over the world below. And it's like you can see so easily all of God's promises, all of his past faithfulness, all of just the goodness of what it is to walk with God and to follow him. That's what it's like when times are good. But I think the experience of having suffering come into our lives is a little bit like the clouds rolling in when you're on the mountain. And I like to hike, and um, there's been a few times where the clouds have rolled in, and it's so disorienting that you get vertigo, because the, the clouds themselves, they're spinning, and you can't really even tell up or down. You lose sight of the person walking next to you, and if you use the metaphor of looking at on the expanse of God's promises and his faithfulness, it all disappears. As the horizon that you're currently walking, it just comes in close, and you're stuck like this, and we forget we're vertical, we're confused. I think this is a little bit like the experience that Israel had moving from verse 7 to verse 8 in chapter 1. Because in verses 1 to 7, what we looked at last week and coming off of the tale of what we called kind of season 1 of the book of the Bible, uh, Genesis is like season 1, Exodus is like season 2, and coming out of the end of, of season 1, out of Genesis, uh, it was a real time of joy, a time of fulfillment, a time of promises being uh, fulfilled and God just blessing and preserving and keeping his people. But when we get to verse 8, 400 years have gone by. We get to verse 8, 400 years have gone by and there's a problem because as Israel grew, the descendants of Abraham and fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, they didn't have dominion In fact, they were dominated. Though they had multiplied in fulfillment of the promise, there's this great problem as they are enslaved, not in control of their own nation and their own land. 
So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this story. We're going to look at the hardship and the suffering that Abraham's descendants began to experience in Egypt. And we're going to look at this, we're going to unpack it because it's actually this suffering that forms the backdrop to the rest of the story that we're in. It's the suffering of the Israelites for those 400 years or in this time that then leads to the rest of the story. But even here, in this very dark passage in Scripture, God has much to teach us. We're going to see in it, and we're going to learn from it, how we can grow to live lives that are faithful to God, trusting in his promises, not just when times are good, but also when times are bad. Also in deep hardship. We'll have three points this morning. We're going to look and unpack the passage, starting with the extraordinary oppression that Israel faced, and then looking at the ordinary courage of Shipra and Pua, and then looking at the final victory of Jesus. So we'll look at extraordinary oppression, ordinary courage, final victory, all to learn how we too can grow to be oriented when the clouds roll in and stay faithful to God when times are difficult. So turn with me then to our first point in Exodus 1 verse 8 to see how things began to go wrong in the story. 1 verse 8 says this, Now, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. By the way, in the ESV translation of the Old Testament, uh, they translate a, a, a thing in, that's going on in, in the Hebrew grammar with now often when it wants you to turn your attention to something new. There's new information that's being added and being brought to you. And here's a new situation. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And with those words, we're being clued in that Israel's situation has radically shifted from what we understood before. Like we talked about earlier, the last parts of the book of Genesis and even the first few verses of Exodus, uh, it was a different kind of situation. Joseph um, had been used by God to preserve his family, the descendants of Abraham, in a time of great famine. He had immense favor with Pharaoh. He was second in command to the most powerful person in the whole region. He was allowed even to move his family into the Nile Delta, which is the most fertile area in all of that region. It's a place of great prosperity. And for 400 years, they multiplied there. But now, a new king has come who did not know Joseph. Drastic change. So what's going on here? Who is this new pharaoh? Well, we don't know for sure, but historians and archaeologists think that this new king may have been a native Egyptian ruler from the south who had finally conquered a group of people, a previous dynasty in uh, Egypt called the Hyksos. And the Hyksos were a people that had ruled the northern portion of Egypt for just a brief 100 years from 1650 to 1550 BC. Right, you got to remember that when we're talking about BC versus AD, the, the smaller number is closest to us. Right, it gets closer to us. And these Semitic people, they, they'd ruled there, and it had actually been this great embarrassment to the native Egyptians that these Semites from the east had moved in and conquered them and driven them back. And then when the native Egyptians then, they fight back and they get rid of the Hyksos in the north, they reclaimed Egypt for themselves, but they didn't quite drive out the Hyksos peoples. 
And the Hyksos, they still maintained a foothold in northeast Egypt, possibly even at the time that this uh, was occurring. So just connect that idea, connect that little bit of history then with our story. Because if we put those pieces together, the story itself and a little bit of that archaeological information, we see this. Here's this new pharaoh. He's a native from the south of Egypt. He's recently conquered these people and, and moved in again. But neither he nor his government nor even his people had anything to do with Joseph and his family when they entered the land. Nothing to do with them. And 400 years have gone by and this people has multiplied and he's like, what is going on with this group of people there in this fertile area in the front or the, the, the uh, mouth of the Delta region? And furthermore, this pharaoh, he had an ongoing Hyksos threat that he was dealing with in the northeast. So Israelites here, Hyksos up here, and he's dealing with the threats. And you can see how that affected him in verses 9 and 10. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel, they're too many and they're too mighty for us. God was fulfilling his promise to bless them, to multiply them. And he's noticing, but not in a good way. He says, come, let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. He's concerned possibly, we don't know this for sure, but it would make good sense. He's concerned about them joining forces with the Hyksos. We've got these two problems and they're going to take over. See, Pharaoh sees what's going on, sees the blessing of God upon the Israelites and he's afraid. And Pharaoh's fear leads him to extraordinary and cruel oppression of the Hebrew peoples. First, by giving them hard labor. You can see that in verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. And yet, verse 12 says that even as they're oppressed, they multiply. Look at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. God just keeps being faithful to his promise. I don't know how that works. Working harder and having more kids. But, but something, something's going on here. The blessing of God. And the more they spread abroad, it says in verse 12. But look, it's not just Pharaoh this time who's scared. It says in the last, the last sentence of the verse 12, and the Egyptians, all of them, the Egyptians, not just Pharaoh, they were in dread, not just afraid, but dread of the people of Israel. I like the picture as I'm reading this story, um, Pharaoh's efforts to quell the multiplication of Israel, um, like somebody who's trying to stamp out a gasoline fire with their boots. You know, and then the more that they work at it, the more the fire spreads. Or if that's not a great image for you because you've never tried to stamp out a gasoline fire, uh, maybe think of, of assigning a toddler to clean up the spilled uh, container of flour all over your living room, right? And the more they get involved, the more the problem just spreads. And I think that's what's going on here. The more Pharaoh tries to deal with the issue, it just makes the problem Worse, and now he and all of Egypt is in dread of the people of Israel. So they increase oppression more. They make them slaves. They make their work bitter. Verses 13 to 14 say, 
So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Just notice all the language of oppression. Ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. It's meant to be a hard picture. And yet, when even this doesn't work, then what does Pharaoh do? He plans a covert genocide, tries to enlist midwives. And then when that doesn't work, well, he makes a genocide public. In verse 22, we read, Then Pharaoh commanded, not just the midwives, all his people, Every son that's born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So that's the story. That's the oppression. This is the passage that we're in this morning. But I think we can learn from it as we begin to orient ourselves to this story in the greater story. So last week we learned that Exodus begins with which word? And. Exodus begins with and in Hebrew. So close, Clinton. It begins with and because it's orienting the reader, not just to the standalone book, but that this book is part of a bigger story. Connecting this story in Exodus to the larger story of God's redemption in this world through Abraham's family. God is a God of love, overcoming human sin and the suffering and the problems in this world. And he's doing that in this story through Abraham's Family. So what's happening in these verses then, if you have Abraham's family, is what God's doing to try to bring out life and redemption into this world. What's happening in these verses then is that Pharaoh isn't just trying to exterminate a family. Pharaoh has set himself up as God's adversary, waging a war of death on God's purposes of life. It's a big cosmic event we're looking at, not a small thing in the history of the world. And that means that Pharaoh, he's not just portrayed as an enemy in the story. He's portrayed as working together with the enemy. We're meant to see the serpent behind Pharaoh. We're meant to see the shaitan The adversary is the Hebrew word we get the word Satan from. The enemy opposed to God and his purposes, trying to bring death and destruction. Maybe it has no significance, but it's an interesting poetic connection, at least, that the Pharaoh had the image of a serpent on their crown. See, we've seen this adversary in the story before. He was lying to Eve in the garden as the serpent, right? When God's bringing life and blessing There he is, bringing death. So wherever God is at work, filling the world with life and the story of the Bible, be sure that the enemy stands close by like a roaring lion waiting to devour the work of God. And wherever human beings listen to the deception of the enemy, they align themselves not with God's purposes of life and love and blessing and righteousness and goodness, They align themselves with the enemy, with his death, and with wickedness. See, 
I think it's important for us to realize that though Pharaoh's oppression is extraordinary, the deception that caused him to join Satan in striving against God's purposes was ordinary. And there's an ordinariness to him being deceived that all of us are prone to. The capacity for great evil and deception and aligning ourselves with Satan is in our hearts and our lives, just as it was for Pharaoh. After all, what did the enemy use to deceive Pharaoh into acting so wickedly against God? What did he manipulate? What emotion was Pharaoh experiencing the enemy manipulated? Fear. Fear. How often have we done wicked things or wrong things or terrible things or sinful things in our own lives because we've been afraid? Because we've listened to the enemy's lies in our fear. See, in the same way, Satan's constantly trying to get us to side with him, just like he did with Pharaoh, to side with him and with death against God by making use of our own fear. It's an interesting illustration of this. There was a book written a while back um, called Ordinary Men by a man named Christopher Browning. And this is a story that recounts a particular police division in Poland in World War II. And the story unpacks how these men, these plumbers and carpenters and bakers and average people, were enlisted and used to exterminate the Jews in Poland. They were put on the execution squads. And what the book explores is the way that these men so easily fell prey to fear. Social fear. Just the social pressure of not fitting in. And were moved along towards wicked actions, maybe against what their own consciences were saying. They joined the enemy as killers. And Pharaoh and the story that ordinary men recounts, they're not isolated stories from long ago that, oh man, that bad stuff happened then. Good thing it doesn't happen any longer. Because the same sort of thing is happening in our own society, in our own lives. Satan's doing the same kind of thing, deceiving us in our fear so that we join with him in death. I want to give you a couple of examples. There's lots of ways that this happens, but here's a couple of notable examples. When we so live in fear of how a child might change my future, it moves us often in our culture to destroy the life of the child who's inconvenient, who's in the way of my hopes and dreams and purposes, or my fear of not having enough. Or on the other hand, our fear of suffering in our society, it moves us very quickly to offer assisted suicide to those who are hurting, to those who are suffering, whether physically or mentally, whether those who are old or those who are young, rather than entering into those situations with love and compassion and care and relationship and friendship. But fear leads us to all kinds of other ways of striving against the life of God besides just these immediate things of death. Because it's our fear, I think, of not having enough for ourselves in our lives that leads us to act with greed and selfishness that ignores the needs of others in our own city. Right? If I don't have enough for me, I'm afraid of not having enough time, energy, resources. And that keeps me from helping those around me. Right? I'm just so focused on me and my fear. And I think as Christians, 
It's very often our fear of what others think of us or losing some reputation or some social standing that keeps us from proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How he has come. He's died as a perfect sacrifice to forgive my sins and bring me reconciled into relationship with the holy God. To give me life. To give me life that is true life aligned with God and his purposes in this world. And we're silent. We don't want to share that. We don't want to talk about sin. We don't want to talk about the gospel. See, Pharaoh's, exp- Pharaoh's oppression, I think, was extraordinary. But the deception that he caved under was profoundly ordinary. And his fear led him to deception and to oppose God's work of life with death. That's point one. But take courage. There is a different sort of fear in this world that we're meant to see next. A fear that can make ordinary people incredibly courageous. They stand strong and faithful, committed to God and his purposes of life. Look at verses 15 to 21, or at least uh, 15 to 16 to start with, and our second point, ordinary courage. There we read this. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Just think of that moment, key moment in history. Key moment for them, either siding with the serpent and the enemy and death or resisting and participating in the life of God. And what do these women do? They don't listen to Pharaoh. They stand strong. They say no to death. They say yes to the life of God. Why? The story tells us. You see that there? Because they feared God and not Pharaoh. Look at verses 17 to 21. But the midwives feared God. That's the reason. They feared God and they did not do as the king commanded them. A resistance movement against death happened because of their fear of God. They let the male children live. So the king of Egypt calls the midwives. I love this story. And he says to them, I mean, I think he's very dumb. I don't mean him. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and he says to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. Come on, Pharaoh, trust us. We deal with with this all the time. (laughs) And they're vigorous. and They give birth before the midwife comes to them. As an aside, note that there's a kind of lying in the Bible that seems to be okay. I'm actually, I actually, I'm, I'm serious. Because we ask the question sometimes, if I was someone hiding Jews, and thinking like, lots of World War II examples today, in my house when, when the Nazis came knocking, I guess I'd have to tell them the truth. That, well, I got, yeah, they're all hidden. They're all in the back. No, but we see throughout Scripture that there is a kind of line that stands with righteousness that is okay in deceiving the forces of evil and wickedness that would bring death opposed to God in his life. I think you see a little bit of that here. I once had a professor who talked about this, and he said, well, he said something theologically complicated, so I won't, I won't repeat it. But, um, but I think it's just important to note that there's a righteous deception, I think, happening here. 
as they're standing with the purposes of God. And what happens? So God dealt well with the midwives. God blessed them. (laughs) And because the midwives feared God, there's the, the key word again, feared God, he gave them families. So they resisted. They stood strong in this time of great persecution against the enemy because they feared God. So it's important then for us to think a little bit about what it means to fear God. What does that even mean? How can we grow and imitate Shipra and Pua and stand strong in our own lives? Well, to fear God, we can say a lot of things about it, but I think it at least is this. To fear God is to recognize and to live one's life with the firm conviction that there is one transcendent, omnipotent, holy, all-knowing creator and sovereign ruler of the universe who rules with all authority and power and who all of us will one day stand before in judgment such that we serve and obey him above any other. So recognize there is one God over all and I serve him. No matter what happens, I stand with him. I don't just serve him in fear because I'm afraid that he's going to judge me. I serve him because I've come to know and to recognize that he is good and that serving him is true life. And this is what it means to fear the Lord. To see God as the true sovereign and ruler of all. To know that he is good and to courageously stand with him. See, because he is good, the fear of the Lord is spoken about so beautifully in Scripture. It's spoken about as confidence and courage and comfort and blessing. I'm going to read you a few verses. In Psalm 128, we read this. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Or Proverbs 14, 26. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. Or Psalm 34, 9 to 10. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack, no need. Does a young lion suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Psalm 103, verse 17. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. What an interesting contrast. The committed, steadfast, faithful love of God poured out on the one who fears him. There's a blessing in this fear of the Lord. See, Shipra and Pua, they feared God, and that meant they courageously obeyed God rather than Pharaoh. And what happened as a result? Well, three things. I'm going to show you them. First of all, God dwelt, dealt well with them and gave them families. We see that in verse 20 which is awesome. I think there's just a simple beauty that's being put forward here in the text of of the simple day-to-day blessings of fearing the Lord. But then we see more than that. In the big picture of the story, we know that God used their fear of him to continue his good purposes of life and redemption in the world. So think about this for a minute. If they did not fear God, Moses wouldn't have been born. If Moses was not born, Israel would not have been freed from slavery in Egypt and into relationship with God. 
And if Israel had not been freed into relationship with God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Savior, the descendant of Abraham, would not have been born, bringing life to all the world. And because, I think third, they feared God rather than Pharaoh, these two women's names are enshrined in the history of the world. So God blessed them. He gave them families. God used their fear to continue his good purposes. And God has exalted their names. This is so interesting to me. In this story, the Pharaoh is not named. We don't know which Pharaoh it is. So if you're someone who's a historian trying to make sense of this, it's really annoying because you're like, oh, I've got to try and figure out all this other data to figure out which Pharaoh it was. This is intentional because this Pharaoh, who was the most important, glorious, powerful man at that time, everybody knew his name. He is utterly forgotten on the pages of history. And these two ordinary women, <laughs> these lowly midwives, their names will be rejoiced in and sung in all of eternity as we celebrate how God used their faithfulness. Isn't that amazing? I think that's amazing. See, if we're going to talk about being on the right side of history, be on God's side of history. Be on God's side of history. See, their small actions of resistance to evil and the fear of God, they were some of the mightiest moments in all of human history. And it makes you think, how might God then use me? What would he do with my life if I grew to fear him more than I do today? How might he use me for life? I mean, just a subsequent question. I, I don't really know how, how to begin fearing the Lord more than I do how can I do that? What I want to say to you is I think it starts with re-godding God in your life. What I mean by that is that we live in a world where there is no transcendent. At least not in our minds or our imaginations or in the way that we live. And even as Christians, I think we practically live very often like God is a very small and very tame God who does as we please, not the other way around. And to re-god God is to live in such a way that you recognize in the whole of your life that there is a God over me. God who is righteous and omnipotent and good. A God that I answer to. A God that I serve. And to grow to begin living as though that is actually true. Day in and day out in your life. And you can grow in the fear of the Lord in living functionally like he is God and you are not. Um, you can do that in a couple of different ways. First of all, you can do that by joining a church, by coming as often as you can to worship him together with us. To remember in this moment of time, these 90 minutes we have together every week, that he is God in heaven, that he is good, and that we serve and we follow and we obey him. We can grow, I think, in fearing the Lord by learning more about his goodness and his great love for us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. By coming to see how wonderful he is. Because he is a God, though he is so exalted and became lowly and died on the cross for me and my sins. Just rejoicing in it. We can grow in the fear of the Lord by learning and studying and even memorizing the Bible. All of it. Not just the portions we like best, but familiarizing ourselves with the parts that make us uncomfortable. To realize that he is God in heaven and we are not. 
so we can all grow together to obey the whole of Scripture in the whole of our lives. And yet, even if we grow in the fear of the Lord, there is no promise in Scripture that things will immediately result in comfort. In fact, in this story with Shipra and Pua, the last verse is the worst verse. See, after we read about their blessing, we read in verse 22, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, he shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. But it's this darkest verse in our passage that leads us to our last point, final victory. And here I want to share with you a verse from the Apostle Peter in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible. And there, the verse I'm going to show you, Peter wrote, we need to know this, he wrote, after Jesus' death on the cross had paid the price for our sin, he wrote, after Jesus had been resurrected as a conqueror of Satan's sin and death, and yet despite all of the victory that he came after, Peter tells the church in 1 Peter 4.12, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. Do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. See, I think we live our Christian lives so often like this guy. Do I got a next slide? You're leaving me hanging. This guy. I think we live our lives so often like him because we think that our relationship with God, it's really only going the way it should, like God has promised me, the package that I signed up for, when all is going well. And we come to God with this expectation, God, give me the blessings package and I'm not interested in anything else. But Shipra and Pua remind us that even when we fear the Lord and are on his side in this world after the victory of Jesus on the cross, still we will have trouble. And not because we got the wrong salvation package. See, even this side, we have the great benefit over Israel. We live on this side of Jesus' work on the cross. But even this side of the cross, not every moment in relationship with God will be the mountaintop with clear skies, Christ City. The clouds will come. Suffering will happen. There's a theologian I like named Don Carson. He likes to say, um, everyone will suffer. The only exception is if you don't live long enough. But the wise and the mature Christian is not surprised when the fiery ordeal comes as though something strange were happening to them. Why is that? Why aren't they surprised? Because they know the cosmic story they're part of. They know the story where Jesus has triumphed and yet where still in this world sin and Satan and death continue and that they'll continue until the day that Jesus returns in his glory. See, Jesus Christ's death and resurrection and ascension to heaven, they're the guarantee that his victory is certain. We've got to hang on to that. 
Now, the guarantee that his victory is certain. The Messiah has come, the descendant of the sons of Pua and Shipra, who they rescued. This Messiah has come and he shed his blood to die in the place of every sinner on the cross. And that guarantees their forgiveness before a holy and a righteous God. That's a victory, praise God. He was also raised from death itself, guaranteeing a resurrection from death for all who trust on him. That is our hope, Christ City, and it is certain. And his death and resurrection, they conquered the power of Satan's accusations against you in your sins, saying that you're not worthy of God's love or of his forgiveness or his salvation. Satan can't accuse you anymore because Jesus has died for you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. All Satan's accusations are worthless and all his deception is being crushed and being worn away in the presence of God's great love for you on the cross. And this same Savior, he sent his Holy Spirit and poured it into our hearts and that guarantees that God will continue his work in our lives until the day that we're with him forever in his presence face to face. All this is guaranteed because of Jesus' work on the cross and by his resurrection. And yet, and yet his victory on earth is kind of like D-Day in World War II. I don't know if you realize this. Again, I realize I have a couple of war illustrations this morning. That's unusual. Um, this is a good one. See, when the Allied forces invaded Europe, that day was called D-Day. And on that day, everybody knew that victory was certain. But you know what happened? For a whole year, the enemy continued to rage against the Allies. Until the moment of final victory finally came in Europe, in Germany, a year later. Likewise, the cross guarantees our victory. It is our victory. And yet the final victory is coming. Today, the scripture is so clear that our adversary still rages. He is a lion looking for someone to devour. In Revelation chapter 12, he's a dragon waiting to devour the child, the Messiah, Jesus, and his people. This is the time in which we live. So let me encourage you. In all the midst of all of that, there is encouragement. The encouragement is this. There is a way to live well in your own suffering. So that you won't succumb to the confusion and the lies of the enemy. But you must do a couple of things. First, you need to orient yourselves in the story that you're part of. You need to know this story. You need to study this story. You need to read this story in the Bible. You need to pray out this story and sing this story. Rejoice in the work of Jesus, in the victory of this story. And also still know that there are enemies left here on earth. Satan and sin and death. And second, you need to fix your hope on all of God's promises as you look to Jesus' cross. See, when you can't see clearly in the fog, you need something to help orient you. Pilots, when they're flying and they're in the clouds, they, they learn to orient themselves by their instrument panel. To fly not by what they see, but by looking at this one thing. In our own suffering, when we lose all perspective, the one thing, the one instrument God's given us to gain perspective is the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. Because in suffering, we lose heart, we get so discouraged, we lose hope, and yet 
when we fix our eyes on Jesus' cross, reminded and we're strengthened and built up in the truth of how much our great and glorious and omnipotent God loves me. He loves us. As you look at the cross, we're reminded that he is uncompromisingly with us and for us. He's proved it by the death of Jesus. And because the cross has already happened, when we look at it, we can be assured that God has promised every promise will certainly come true and that nothing can separate us from his love. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he then not also with him graciously give us all things? Grace City, you have suffering right now, I'm sure. In that suffering, how does this verse speak to you? Remember the cross of Jesus. Take hope. Take courage. If God has already sent Jesus to die for your sins, what would he possibly withhold from you? What promise would he leave unfulfilled for you? Romans 8, 37 to 39, just past this verse, says this, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor angels, nor death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Don't lose sight of the cross. Know that God has loved you and will love you to the end. And because he loves you, come to him in prayer. Talk to him through your suffering. Pour out your heart before him in all that's going on. Seek him. Ask him to help. He will answer your prayers. So we need Christ City to be like in this world is Pua and Shipra and not Pharaoh. And the ways that we grow in the glory and the beauty of what we see in Pua and Shipra is growing in the fear of the Lord and growing to not be surprised when trials come as we hope in Jesus Christ and his cross. Let me pray for us. God, would you meet us this morning in our lives? Lord, would you open up our hearts before you so that we can pour out in honesty before you our own fears, the things that we're wrestling with that are leading us to be deceived by the enemy. And Lord, would you conquer every fear that comes with the overwhelming love you've shown us in Jesus. Lord, that we would trust you and follow you. That we'd remember all of your promises, all of your goodness towards us in him. That we'd have courage to take another step of obedience in the fear of the Lord, regardless of what the consequences are. Lord, would you glorify the name of Jesus here in this church, here in this neighborhood, in this city. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.